These conversations touch on some really heavy themes. Please listen with care. I was prepped for the caring role since day one. I think the only reason I've been able to do so well as a carer of late in life is because I was a carer when I was younger. And I think those little things that had happened had like primed me to just take that stuff on. Hi, I'm Prudence Granger, and I was the carer for my dad who had early onset Alzheimer's. And I'm currently the carer in residence for the Carer Knowledge Exchange. This is Care to Share. On this show, I have open and honest conversations with carers. We talk about the challenges, roadblocks, and joys of caring. Caring is often hidden and nuanced. This podcast is an opportunity to break down the stigmas around care by hearing firsthand the stories of those who live this experience every day. Today, I'm sitting down with Imogen. I met Imogen while working in the disability support field. I supported her sister, Jacinda, who has cerebral palsy and requires full-time care. We started our chat talking about Imogen's childhood and family home. My dad was pretty much the single parent because my mum was in and out of the picture. And there was me and my sister Jacinda, who were twins, and my sister has cerebral palsy. I've then got my little sister Taylor, who's a year and a half younger, and then my little brother Lachlan, who is seven years younger than me. And in those early years, what was it like in your home? Clearly very busy, lots of people. Yeah, very busy, lots of people. I think... From a very early age, we got used to a lot of people coming in the house, for example, like helping with my sister's care. I always thought it was very normal, but going over to other people's houses was like, you have OTs coming in the house and you have carers helping her shower. So I think there was always someone in the house that wasn't there the whole day. And then, you know, we had three girls, one boy, there was always things going on. What are some examples of like stuff that was happening in the home? I mean, we would always dress my little brother up. That's cute. Um, and he would be called Lockalina, which we still call him <laughs> to annoy him. And then there was also Jacinda needed a lot in both day-to-day care, but also school and also extracurricular stuff. So a lot of it was me taking on a little bit more of a parenter role to especially Taylor and Lachlan so dad could do things for Jacinda. How did you understand Jacinda's disability when you were younger? Jacinda needed a little bit more help walking. She needed a little bit more help doing very like gross motor things because her arm has limited mobility. So growing up, it was never extra responsibility and understanding of her disability. It was just, this was something that physically Jacinda needs a little bit more help. And we're all as a family going to help her do the things. So, you know, if we're making lunch, make Jacinda lunch at the same time. If we're cutting up something, cut up Jacinda's stuff at the same time. It was kind of like, Whoever's the closest, you just help. And that was kind of just the expectation around those things. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess having a bigger family makes it a little bit easier to share the load in that regard. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, there was always someone around to help, whether that be helping Jacinda down the stairs, helping her cut something out, helping her flick something with the remote. Like everyone was always available in the house, especially when we were younger, when we weren't kind of going out, someone was always there. You started school together in the early years, so when you were younger, but were separated. Tell me a bit about that. Yeah, so we, you know, the same age, we went to preschool together and we were originally put in the same class. And I think within a few weeks, mum and dad had gotten a call that they were going to separate us because I was doing everything for her. And I don't remember it, but what I got told was we'd have an activity where we'd need to cut something up. And before someone could help Jacinda, I would be already over there doing her things first. And it was kind of noted that I was finishing Jacinda's activities before doing my own. 
you know, when there was times to get out toys, I would go get Jacinda's favourite toys first because maybe she couldn't get up as fast as the others and run to them. So I think they noticed that I was taking on a lot of that responsibility when in actual fact, there was all of these workers to help her and I didn't need to be doing that. So from then they've separated us into different classes and they kind of stopped putting me in an environment where I felt like I had to do the things. Because at home, the first thing that we did would help Jacinda. Like even now when I make a meal, the first person's plates down is always Jacinda's and it's all cut up for her and she's ready to eat first. And that was just always the way. Jacinda needs to be taken care of before everyone else is. And I guess that was just the way that I was used to doing things. So that just kind of followed me. The school that you went to, was it set up to provide the support that Jacinda needed? In primary school, yes. That was probably the least involved I'd ever been in her life, I think, in primary school, because I just didn't have to be. It was kind of all provided for her. And I think that was a lot to do with her teachers who, because they knew her and because they spent the whole year with her, they were more than happy to adapt things to how she would best learn. So for you in your primary school experience, to an extent, felt quite good. Yeah, definitely. And I did leave the primary school that that we were at in year five and year six to go to an OC class. So I, that was my first time ever being in a school where my siblings weren't. And I think that was a really important thing to me as well, because it was easy to go hang with my sisters during lunch because it was, it was fun, but it was putting me out of my comfort zone, making me have my own identity, have my own experiences that were different from my siblings. I think that was one of the best times in primary school. What did you discover about yourself in those years of independence? I think that I, like, I just really, really liked learning and I really liked learning new things. And I liked having those opportunities to stay back and do like a project with someone or stay back and do an extracurricular activity. And that I I really just enjoyed being in an environment with other people that really wanted to learn and really wanted to push themselves. And I just didn't feel like held back at all. I was just able to do what I wanted to do. Hmm. Being in an environment where you get to explore your own work ethic for you. Yeah. Do you think that was important and that's kind of molded, you know, what you've prioritized now for yourself, having that opportunity? Yeah, I think so in a way. Like I just didn't have another person to think about. And because of that, all my energy just went into me. And I think it was one of the only times in my life that my energy was able to just go towards me and not go towards someone else. So that was like a really good experience, I think, yeah. So you ended up going to the same high school and you mentioned earlier your high school experience is different to primary school in terms of Jacinda's needs being met. So how was it different? It was really, really hard to get used to going to school with my sister. The mornings would be fine because she had a bus driver that used to come in like a specially accessible vehicle with the big back seat where the wheelchair could fit in and they would take her to and from school. Um, So I kind of wouldn't see her until recess and lunch and those kinds of things. But that would be when I was put in an environment where I had to do more for her. The high school had a lot of accessibility features. They had ramps, they had an elevator. So everything on paper looked really well. But when you kind of looked at it, it became clear that a lot of the work that they were expecting Jacinda to do, she couldn't do. So I think on paper, everyone made this decision like, oh my goodness, the closest high school at us is perfect for Jacinda. And it became very clear that the teachers didn't know what they were doing. I think the communication at the school wasn't very good. I know a lot of them expected Jacinda to handwrite. And very early on, my parents made a decision that with the teachers at primary school that Jacinda could not handwrite. It would always need to be typed. And a lot of teachers weren't willing to accommodate that. And that's kind of where the big struggles started to happen. These things needed to be handwritten. 
And if Jacinda handed in something that was typed up, they would go, nope, it needs to be handwritten. I was then expected to do the handwritten stuff. And that was kind of where it first started to creep in. You'd think the teachers would step in and go, okay, it's not appropriate for Imogen to be doing Jacinda's homework. Yeah. But rather they're like, oh, it's done. Move on. Yeah. And look, it was more in the earlier years. I think once I hit year nine and year 10, I started to set more boundaries for myself. But especially in like year seven and eight, I would have teachers come up in the hallway and be like, do you know when Jacinda's things do? And I'm like, I'm not Jacinda. I don't know. And they're like, well, you don't want Jacinda to fail. Can you just do it? How did that make you feel? Oh, just terrible. It was terrible because... I felt like it was a backhanded compliment. So I think when I was younger, I used to take it as a compliment. And I think that's one of the reasons why I have such a high drive for myself. Because it was like, you're so good, you can do two work. And I was like, I can do it. Like, I can prove it to you. And then it started to be like, no, wait a second. And I started listening to the other part. Like, I'm expected to do someone else's work. Why is that fair? Why are they not allowed to go through the terrible experience that everyone does of forgetting their homework? And then going to school the next day and realising, oh, you know what, it wasn't a terrible experience. It's fine. Everyone does this. Mm. So it was really, really difficult. Also, just what I'm hearing as well, that's a lot of guilt to place on such a young person. Yeah. How do you think that's impacted you now? Definitely. I think I was prepped for the caring role since day one. I think the only reason I've been able to do so well as a carer late in life is because I was a carer when I was younger. And I think those little things that had happened had like primed me to just take that stuff on. So I think it had a really, really big impact, but it was the perfect thing for what I needed to do later in life. Because I don't think I, if I had had a normal sibling relationship with all of my siblings growing up, I think stepping into a caring role later in life would have been really, really difficult. And I probably bear the disadvantages of that, that it wasn't, but it was advantageous for my little brother and my sister that I was able to kind of step into that a little bit more naturally. Uh, yeah. So your dad was just in his primary care through childhood yeah. and worked limited hours to do so. Yeah. So things, I guess, were tight financially. Yeah. Was the financial stress something you were aware of? Yeah. I mean, we didn't like go to excursions or things. So it was very clear that, like, everyone else would go to the snow, but we couldn't afford it. I remember trying to get payment plans at school and we got told, like, only one person can have the payment plan and that's Jacinda. So Jacinda was able sometimes to go on things and I wasn't because we couldn't afford it straight out for me, but we could afford it in increments for Jacinda. So I think we were always kind of aware of it. And, I mean, Dad was pretty vocal about the fact, like, I can't work five days a week because... I have to be home or I have to take Jacinda to these appointments. So we kind of did get told a lot. Like, I don't think it was something that was hidden. We always had a roof over our heads. We always had food. So it was never anything to me that I was ever, like, concerned about. Like, I didn't lay awake at night worrying about it. But I definitely knew that it was having an effect on us. So what kind of things were prioritised for Jacinda that meant you missed out? Yeah, so... Because we were the same age, everything happened at the same time. Graduating at the same time, we had formals at the same time, we'd have award ceremonies at the same time, and especially in year 11 and year 12 where I went to, again, a different school, they would somehow just always be on, like, the same day or very, very close together. And Jacinda's just always won out. It wasn't like a discussion. So we had formals one night after each other. So Jacinda's was first and we all came out, we all did photos, and then I remember it was up in the mountains and me and my dad hung around 
um, until the formal ended. And, you know, Jacinda said, like, I'm partying, like, you know, it's ended at like 10, but come pick me up at 10.45. And Deb was like, oh, you know, she's trying to have a good night. Like, you'll have a good night tomorrow. You'll be all good. So we had a really late night and took her home. And then my formal was the next day and we were down taking pictures and Jacinda started to get very emotionally overwhelmed because no one wanted to take pictures of her and we weren't talking about her. And it wasn't a vindictive thing. I think it was just her not being able to adapt to people are taking pictures of me and Jacinda's not in all those pictures. For example, like there'd be a lot of pictures with friends or my ex-boyfriend or teachers and Jacinda wasn't in them. And Jacinda started to get really, really upset and to the point where my family left like 25 minutes in um, and I have no pictures with my family, which is really hard. I'm sorry. You're allowed to cry. (laughs) Don't apologize. Feelings are feelings. (laughs) So I think, yeah, and it was kind of the same thing. Our grads were the same day. So went to Jacinda's. And I think it hurts a little bit now because I don't have my parents that they missed out on those things. So I can't really get them back. So I think that was just, that's just hard. Understandably. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, I completely understand that it's been really, really difficult to, I guess, um, sacrifice your formative experiences and your memories. Yeah. And what should be special for anybody. Yeah. Fast forward to 2018. Yes. You are 20 years old doing your bachelor's degree in psychology when your dad suddenly passes away. Yeah. If you don't mind me asking, how did he pass away? Um, He pretty much had a heart attack. It was a um, Sunday morning. He was at his girlfriend's place. So one of the things that got better as we got older was that he could kind of leave for the weekends to do things for him or also to work. And because I was old enough, I was able to kind of just do a meal here and there, make sure the house didn't burn down. So he was up visiting his girlfriend and then he ended up having a heart attack and passing away. And we kind of found out through our nan and through other family members, both me and my sister were actually at work at the time. So we got a call where we didn't get told what was going on. And I was very annoyed at my nan because she was asking me to leave work and I couldn't do that. And I was trying to explain to her, I can't leave work. Um, And she's like, you have to. So then I went to my sister who works in like the same area, the same little village that I did. I was like, Nan wants something, but it's probably nothing. Don't worry. And then I had to tell Nan that I told Taylor not to worry. So they had to go up and get her. Oh, God. Sorry, I'm laughing. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's very I just normal. still find it very funny. <laughs> it's funny, these like little nuances. You're like, oh, Nan's being annoying. But- That's what I was like. I'm like, Nan, I can't leave. I'm a supervisor for today. And then I, and luckily the people that I work with were lovely. And I was a checkout chick and I worked there for ages. And they're like, it's fine. I was like, I'll be back in like an hour. <laughs> I was not back in an hour. <laughs> I mean, that alone would be such a difficult experience to go through to lose you know your primary parent yeah and I guess that's compounded by the fact that you're going into this heartbreaking experience and then having to figure out how to take on responsibility for the rest of your family yeah yeah it was it was a whirlwind I think for like probably like four to six months because there was so many questions Unfortunately, like the grief did take a backside and like still has because it was like, how are we going to survive as a family? Like, where are we going to get money from? Where are we going to live? Like, 
all of those immediate questions were coming out and we didn't like have answers for them. Unfortunately, my mum was not healthy enough and well enough to be able to take care of us at that time. So it was kind of trying to figure out like, where do we go from here? And not to add to the, you know, heartbreaking Mm. recount, but from my understanding, your mum passed away not long after as well. Yeah, less than a year later. And it was like very eerily similar, like the funeral was at the same place on a Friday and like it was just like so many similarities. Mm. So you go through these two huge traumatic losses. Yeah. And as you just said, grief took a backseat. Yeah. Logistics was priority. Yeah. And I guess that logistical priority was more on your shoulders than anybody else. Yeah. So what did that look like for you? When it happened, we ended up going down to my nan's place for like, I think it was like a week. Um, And that was where we kept having like pretty long family meetings where everyone didn't come to any answers. We were like, what the hell are we going to do about everything? It was never asked for me to take things on, but I kind of said, if there's any way that we can manage it, I'll take everything on. I'll look after people because it's the only way we're all going to stick together. And I guess as well for you, having your family together. Yeah. I think, yeah, it just kind of gave us a sense of comfort knowing that we were kind of all in it together. I mean, it's interesting that you say nobody asked me to take on this responsibility, but the reality is you were primed your whole life for this. Yeah, yeah. And so nobody asked, but there was probably this like background expectation that you would. Yeah. I guess it's just like a replaying of the when you were younger doing the things and being like, oh, look at me, I can do both things. I'm so impressive. Wait, hold on a second. Why do I have to do this? Yeah, why do I have to be impressive? Why is this the way that I have to show that I'm impressive? You know, like I said before, this this interview is about you Mm. and the narrative of your life due to care has been your second. Yeah. And I just feel like it's so, it must be so challenging. And I think it's like, it's a systemic thing, right? It's not your family's fault. No, no. It's that there's not the right supports and networks and places with answers yeah. to these questions so that you can also have the life that you deserve yeah. amidst this. Yeah. And, you know, through all these conversations we have, it's, you know, I grew up with a sibling with disability, mm. which meant I had to make sure I was perfect so they yeah. had to worry about me, yeah. et cetera. And it's like, why isn't there this holistic approach that yeah. when the health system recognizes one person in the family has this to go, okay, how can we bring the whole family together to create a system of support and care that makes sure every individual's needs are met, not just the person who's got extra needs. Extra needs, yeah. And I I think it was, you know, it wasn't my dad's fault growing up, but there was also one less parent in the house. So naturally someone needed to fill in and do those kinds of things. And I think there's just such an expectation that it's the family's responsibility. It's the family's job. So when all of that stuff was happening younger, that just fell to me. And then when I was older, again, that fell to me and it kind of kept going. It's your responsibility to look after Jacinda. Oh, you're available. You need to go do this. So it is just that expectation that it's the family's job to deal with it. And like, they need to make the best of it. But it's like, everyone has a finite amount of resources. And I think people get very sometimes annoyed when they haven't been in that circumstance because they don't know what it feels like. Mm. I remember being in your home when you were preparing for your NDIS review. We all love our NDIS (laughs) reviews. You were referencing a previous time in a review where basically 
the caseworker who was taking on that review basically said that if you're free, you mm-hmm. can do it. Uh, yeah. rather than recognising you as an individual who deserves to have a life, who deserves to study, who deserves to work or live within your realms of care. So, yeah, what has been your experience with these systems, with the NDIS? How could it have been easier? How could you have been seen more? What were the burdens? Yeah, I think it is that just immediate burden of if you're free, that means you can do stuff. And not looking at the fact that It didn't matter that I was doing uni. It didn't matter that I was caring for my little brother as well. It didn't matter that all the housework was on me. Jacinda was the only thing in my life and that was it. So it's that complete ignorance of everything else that is going on in that system because Jacinda doesn't work alone as well. She's part of a system and her immediate system is her family and how her family operates. They didn't want to know how the family operated. They didn't want to know how we were all able to function. It was how can you do the most for Jacinda? and we not have to do as much. And that is really hard because you feel like the terrible person for saying, no, I can't do it. So they put that on you and they're like, well, you just said you're free two days a week. Why can't you do that two days a week? And I think it puts you in a really bad place where you do feel guilty. Even though you know it's fine and you know you should have stuff, you still feel guilty because then you start thinking about what of all those people that don't have family members that can do this? And then you start convincing yourself this is the best way for me to do it. And it's like, it's not the best way for you to do these things. And it is really hard. You need to take a really firm stance and be like, no, I'm not doing this. This isn't my job. I'm here to care for Jacinda, but I need support in order to do that. But in all of those meetings, the focus is very much on Jacinda. No one had ever asked me about how are you coping with your mental health? Let's take away everything else that you have to do as a carer. Yeah. (laughs) Then in order to get the support that you need, which essentially you have to fight for, to get that support, there is a level of preparation and planning and documenting and appointments and doing the same thing over and over and over again just to prove that you deserve to have a day off. Yeah, yeah. It is so hard. Most of my computer space is not like uni reports. It's like the 30th draft of this report that we're trying to send to the NDIS. I mean, we've spoken a lot to what within this experience has been difficult or hard or what you've missed out on. But what do you think all of these experiences have given you as Mm. a person? I think they have made me a more compassionate person. I think it has made me more open-minded. You know, a lot of the experiences I had growing up were very different for things that other people had my age. And that was when I was younger, but also being a carer quite young, it wasn't talked about. It was very isolating because I didn't realise that there are other people that are doing this, but that it's not quite so visible and it's not quite so talked about. So always having just a collection of different experiences that made me feel like an outsider, I didn't want other people to feel like that. I think that I know I can get through hard things. I like to joke that I this is the hard part of my life now and that I'm going to win the lottery and all of these great things are going to happen. So kind of knowing that I've been able to get through hard things. So that means no matter what happens later in life, I'm still going to be able to get through them. And I think sometimes people have to wait a little bit later in life to kind of find out that they are resilient and find out that they can do things. Okay, so let's zoom out a little bit. Yeah. And take into account 
your own experience, your context, mm. what yeah. you've been through growing up, and then your knowledge of the systems as a whole. Yeah. If you were to put all of this knowledge, experience, and stuff into a pot and stir it around, <laughs> how would you shift things yeah. so that you could still do what you needed to do for your family, yeah. but also have your own well-being, your own identity. Like what is missing? What can be put into place? I think just overall capitalism society that we live in, you can't take breaks. It's a hustle culture. I think there needs to be more understanding that there's times in life where you need a break and it shouldn't be a detriment towards you. Because I had to push myself probably to the point where it was very unhealthy to get through my undergrad because it was like either do that or give up. And I don't think that I should have had to make that choice. I think those are really difficult choices for people to make. When I was trying to take time off from dad dying, when I was trying to take up time off from mum dying, it was very much like, well, the world doesn't stop. I think you need to be able to take breaks and there should be systems in place that allow you to do that. I'm not the only person that I've had parents die while I'm doing undergrad. Yes, it's maybe an uncommon, but I'm not the only person that's gone through that. There should be things in place. And I think when there's things not in place around that, it can feel really isolating. And then you get, I'm different to everyone else. No one else is going through this thing. Like I'm all alone in dealing with it. So I think just feeling like I could pause things would have been really, really helpful. I think another thing that you mentioned was that whole holistic side of things. Take the NDIS and everything, taking an approach of the family as a whole. And again, hindsight is twenty twenty. but I really would have loved to be given family therapy or something or had that recommended to us because it was kind of just assumed, oh, well, Imogen's the eldest, she'll do it. And like through my knowledge of family systems, when a child breaks that sibling barrier and goes into a caring barrier, it causes all of these problems. And if you're then putting someone in that position, surely you have to acknowledge that they need support. And I think it's only now when we're struggling with transitioning between I'm not a carer anymore, I want to take more of a sibling role. No one knows what that looks like because I've never had just a sibling role. So then there's so many emotions tied up into it and so many expectations that people now don't know where to place, where I think it would have been really helpful for someone to come in and say like, hey, this stuff is going to happen is really normal because this is not a normal situation. And that's okay. You guys can make it work, but you need to know that this stuff is going to happen because I think it was just assumed that nothing bad was going to happen as a consequence of it. And that's just not the case. My last thing that I thought would have been really helpful, and this is just like an NDIS thing, would have been like a crash course or something because it is so hard to navigate. I'm still learning things five years in. So I think Having more resources accessible about the NDIS, it feels very sometimes shrouded in mystery and very secretive. And I think that people outside of the system look at that and like something shady must be going on because there's not a lot of information on this. And then people that are in the system are like, we can't even get information on how to access things. And I think if they opened things up and had conversations about how do you go about doing this and what to do when these situations come up, it would be so much more easier to access. Uh, I feel you. I could not agree more with everything you just said. Look into the future. Yeah. What's next? It's exciting. I'm actually transitioning, I think I mentioned it, out of my caring role. So when I took over everything, we kind of had when my little brother turns 18, he's an adult, that's when we're going to start looking at new things. I always framed it as this is a temporary thing that I'm doing. So he has turned 18, he's working, and we've all decided we're all going to go off in different directions. For example, me and my boyfriend are going to move out together. 
Jacinda, we're looking at placing her in supported independent living. So she will have an environment that is catered towards her. I think it'll be really great for her because it won't be, I'm doing uni work, I can't help you with that. Someone will always be there to help her and give her what she needs. My little brother is going to live with a family friend. So he's going to be living with a family. And then my sister, is Taylor, is also moving out with her partner. So we're all kind of trying to go our separate ways and kind of live the next chapter of our lives. And it is very, very exciting. But I think it definitely is bringing up a lot of what does the role now look like? So I think the next few years are going to be definitely very interesting. A lot of boundary setting, I think, on my part and trying to really, I think now for the first time is putting myself first and my life first and being able to kind of do all those things I haven't been able to do. Mm. It's an interesting transition. I've recently done it myself (laughs) from caring to being independent. How'd it go? <laughs> Look, a lot of guilt. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of free time being like, oh, is this how much time normal people yeah. have? Oh, no wonder people seem like they're doing so many things Thanks. and I'm not. <laughs> I think one of my biggest pieces of advice is don't try to fill all the time straight away because that's what yeah. I did. Yeah. And now I'm like, oh, I'm overwhelmed. <laughs> I'm just as busy as I was before. Great. But perhaps it's also a part of our personalities. Yeah. Well, it's actually <laughs> coinciding with a little bit of a break from uni. Um, nice. So I'm hoping to kind of just be able to slow down. I think that's something that I really want to do because realistically, I haven't done that for five years. Well, I mean, going back to that well-being aspect, right? Yeah. You're now going to be able to prioritize you. I am. So looking at what it is that you want for your future for your family that you're likely going to grow with your partner, what you want for your career, who you are, and, you know, maybe sit down and read a book or listen to a podcast. I know. And do very, very normal things. Very normal things. I'm excited. What a wonderful note to wrap things up on. I'm really, really looking forward to see what the future holds for you. Thank you very much and thank you for having me. I think it's a great thing to talk about and make people aware of and that everyone has a story and there's certain stories that I think get told less and I think we should make sure that we're telling them. 100%. Thank you. Thank you.